Martin Steller, it's so good to see you again. Likewise. When I met you before, we had what we might call a short coaching session, and I left our conversation with a lot of thoughts. We uh, worked through some very interesting analyses, and we found some interesting directions. But most importantly, the the experience itself to me was was very instructive. You know, most of the ideas that we discussed, um, like uh, I've I've read books and seen presentations that talk about the same things, but the experience of talking to you was very compelling. The words that you choose, the way you uh, appear and speak. So if we compared talking to you and reading a book. And if we assume for the sake of the argument that uh, the content and the benefit is exactly the same, I might actually prefer the experience of talking to you. So how do you design and develop a convincing presence and conversational experience like this? Well, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, it's, it's, it's really nice to hear. It's a natural form of design i would say it's not so much intentional like it's not a designed thing it's simply the compound of years of learning and practicing and pulling everything together that i uh, gathered over the years so the first thing is that for 25 years, I've been a student of psychology or 30 years, right? It's always been fascinating to me to learn people, to figure out why people do the things they do. Um, second thing that then gets added in is listening, like really paying attention to somebody, not just what they're saying, but also to what they're not saying, how their micro expressions, body language, um, what I can piece together from what they've told me about their history and an intuitive process of trying to really grasp what the other person is about and what they're dealing with and what they're up against and what life is like for them. It's, it's my favorite question is what, what is it like to be them to really try and be as present as I can possibly be in the moment with a person and bring everything that I have to the table to make this as much of a valuable and memorable experience as I can. That that's how I quote unquote design hmm. the way of, of 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 talking of being with people. Are there any particular um, topics in psychology or people in psychology or resources that uh, really drive this uh, this thought? I've I've read a lot in all kinds of different fields, but. Um, the way I see things, I would I would say that is based on Jungian psychology, mm. uh, and there is an an author, a coach, uh, the Shrink for Entrepreneurs, Peter Schellard, and um, he has written a lot of articles. I've listened to an enormous amount of webinars with him, and he's really been a very big influence in terms of the psychology of where it comes to communication, but also how to show up as an entrepreneur, as a professional, uh, and then related to, 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 to marketing, uh, sales conversations. He's been one of my, my big uh, inspirations. So on the topic of sales and marketing, I noticed that these days you concentrate on helping nice people sell. And you have this idea you call ethical sales. What does all of this mean? Like, what is a nice person, for example? It's not so much about the label. It's more how you show up in life and to business and to other people. 
why are you in business? What's your purpose? What, to, to, to what end do you risk complete abject failure in trying to run a business? Is it because you just want to make a lot of money? Or is it because you have something that can make a positive change for people? And you're willing to bring that to people at the cost of potential failure. If that is the way you show up, you have a really powerful motivator. People like that typically are people who really care about values and integrity and doing right by people. That's, you know, that you can label that nice people, hmm. good people. Uh, this is the kind of person who typically struggles very much trying to get their work in the hands of other people because we don't want to violate our values, because we have our moral ethical compass. And so we don't want to bother people. We don't want to make cold calls. We don't want to have a sales conversation. We don't want to even do any selling because we just want to help and serve. We just want, this is very much how I started. You know, when, when I started as an entrepreneur, I didn't want to have anything to do with sales because my, the quality of my work was so good. People should just choose that because of its quality. And I would write blog articles and participate in forums. And that was it. You know, I, di I didn't want to do any business activities. Mm. This caused me to fail at my first company. It was a, a bankruptcy because I refused to get over myself. My values were so important to me that I wouldn't do anything to actually help people get the work that I do. Mm. So ethical selling, the way I define it, is a way of communicating with people that is based on service is based on empathy and integrity with the goal of helping somebody make a decision. And that's the job of the ethical seller is to facilitate the decision-making process where it can turn out to be a yes and it can turn out to be a no. And if you really care about the other person and their outcome and their well-being, then you should be okay with a yes or a no. And that's where... The, you know, the nice people actually have an edge over other people. When we have a sales conversation where I actually recognize that it's not the right time or not the right product for you or service, and I direct you to choosing a no, or I help you discover that actually, no, Martin, at this point with you, it's not something that we should be starting. Then I serve you in, 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 in terms of what is best for you, not my sale, my revenue. No, I, I want what is best for you. When that happens, and when I can take a no and say, that is awesome, thank you, I'm glad you realized this and made this decision, then the effect is that you won't remember it as something where you've been pressured or manipulated. You'll remember it as a helpful conversation, as a process that brought you clarity and insight, and where you, in full autonomy, made the decision to say no. If I then, a few weeks later, come back and say, hey, how's it going? If I follow up, if I check in, if I, you know, whatever next step there is, you will be much more welcoming, much more open. Because, hey, you were treated with respect. You felt good talking to me. And you left the conversation with the feeling of, yeah, I'll talk to you again. And then selling becomes something very natural. It becomes a yeah, trust-based, friendship-based process of discovery and generating insights and clarity mm. that puts you in control, makes you the, the authority in the entire process. Mm. I'm 
here to have a leadership role to steward over the quality of the conversation. But in the end, it's you, the boss. You make the decision. <laughs> it actually reminds me a lot of uh, the kinds of things that we talk about in design uh, when we talk about human-centered design or design thinking, which are things uh, based very much on understanding the other person, understanding the customer, and then um, then actually building the product, then figuring figuring out the product decisions to serve that person, and uh, it's it's very much predicated on a conversation. It's uh, you know you have to get together with your users, you have to have conversations, uh, interviews, anthropological studies to understand exactly what will serve these people. So that's that's the heart of a lot of design that is done today. And I actually. Uh, so when I looked up your process of ethical sales, uh, it seems to be predicated on a conversation, as you said, between the customer and the salesperson. Uh, so one of the things that you said in another interview, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, if you want to be interesting to people, be interested in them, which reminds me of uh, Dale Carnegie in How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's an amazing book that I recommend to anyone. Uh, but we'll talk about books in a minute. So uh, if we stay on the topic of design and of conversation. So, I mean, this is a design podcast. And in design, uh, sales is very obviously relevant in two places. First of all, you need to find employment. So you have to either sell your work to clients or you need to sell your work to a company to get on their staff. Uh, but many designers also create things that, uh, that sell at scale. The purpose of most design work today is to sell something using a visual language. And I know that you've been a copywriter also. You have an expertise in that domain. So how do you have a conversation and show interest in the customer if your medium is uh, scalable? So like, can we apply your framework to copywriting or graphic design? The framework for it is... So I, I have this little... Um, model for, for, for marketing and sales, which is leap. You, you mm. listen, you explain, you ask, and you profit. Mm -hmm. It starts with listening. That is not just because Dale Carnegie wrote about uh, uh, being interested in people. It's because unless you take the time to research what is important to the other people, mm. um, what their fears are, their desires, their wishes, their wants, their aspirations, their frustrations, how are you going to be able to present a message or a design or a visual representation or trigger that's going to click with them? So in a sales conversation, you want to ask a lot of questions and really listen intently and um, uh, try to figure out what the other person is like. If it is more remote, if there's a screen in between, then your research still has to happen. It's just you need to find different ways to do that exploration. So no matter what it is that you are trying to sell or uh, convince somebody of, you always need to take a lot of time to figure out what kind of conversation is going on in somebody's head. Right? So everybody has a conversation in their mind. It's the internal dialogue. Hmm. Your goal in business is to become part, to be included in that conversation to join the conversation going on in the other person's head. And there is no other way to do that than to research. Whether you read piles of marketing reports uh, and studies, or you have customer interviews, um, or you use surveys, there's all kinds of ways that you can show up to the existing information and data 
drink that in and start to learn the other person. And this is the, the, the major mistake that I see people make. And it goes for copywriters, designers, uh, uh, coaches, consultants. Nearly everybody assumes that what they think the other person needs mm. is actually what that person wants. But then you're operating and thinking, communicating from inside your own bubble. And some people will say yes, and they will pay you, or they will click or download. But a lot of people will feel that it's not really for me. And then you lose. So research, study people, become a fascinated a deeply curious learner of others, become an anthropologist, a, a, a perpetual study into what life is like for the other. And that's the only way. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. One of my favorite books for designers is a book called The Ten Faces of Innovation, written by Tom Kelly. Uh, who is uh, a partner at one of the most successful design companies in the world. And he describes the roles or competences, or let's say the jobs that you need to have in a team if you want to do successful uh, design and innovation projects. I think the first one is the anthropologist. It, it always begins with understanding the kinds of people that you uh, design for. And I've actually, uh, when I studied your framework, the LEAP framework, resonated with me a lot because I realized that uh, for in the recent years, I have been applying this in, in various conversations when I'm, uh, when I go into, let's say, uh, a, a job interview, or uh, a talk with prospective collaborators. I, I rarely go in there and I'm like, I'm have pre-decided that we are a good fit. And I really want this job. And um, you know, or I really want this project. It's always uh, like I go there for the pro for the purpose of uh, figuring out if it is a fit or if it is not. And most of the time, in fact, it is not. Uh, but there's also another dimension where you can take this and like circle back and treat every sales conversation like a job interview. Where, as a salesperson, I guess you can ask yourself, you know. Am I willing to continue my relationship with this person? Because this, it's not over in that moment. Like if it's just over and if you make the sale and if you leave, then you can use whatever tactics or whatever uh, approach you want. And as long as you win, you win. But if you treat it as a continuous game, if you treat it as a repetitive, positive sum game, then uh, it, it, it changes. The quality of engagements that you uh, go into uh, increase at that point. And on the topic of jobs, you seem to have led an extremely creative life. You know, when I looked at your resume, <laughs> it seems like you've reinvented yourself many times. Looking back, I mean, you've been a monk living in a monastery for 12 years. You have ran a bespoke tailoring company for uh, which uh, for people in our audience who are not familiar with the term, this is a shop where you produce formal clothing like suits and blazers and so on, which are handmade. They are handmade from scratch for the customer. So this is a luxury craft service. Uh, then you took up, up copywriting and currently you serve as a sales and marketing coach. I have also read that you are an illustrator and that you're a singer. And I've heard that you had a period focusing on art marketing. This is a very rich life, you know, like so many enviable creative experiences. You know, most of us 
stick to one profession for all of our lives. It's uncommon to lead a life like yours. What do you find the most rewarding in reinventing yourself multiple times? And is there anything that you feel you might be missing out on? Ooh. Well, you know, you call it reinventing yourself. Uh, from from where I stand, it's like I just have trouble figuring out what to do with myself. Hmm. You know, I experiment and I learn and I try to figure out how this thing called life works and where I can thrive most and serve most and where there's new things to learn that create new opportunities or relationships or possibilities. So it's just mm, the consequence of being, being insatiably curious, um, having a passion for learning, uh, for experimenting, and letting life kind of guide me. And so, yeah, then I end up making choices that may or not be wise choices, but they then bring me experiences and results and growth. And then that leads into something else. And yeah, it is a very, very beautiful experience, but it is also frustrating because what it comes down to is that I have trouble focusing. Mm. Right? I, I can fall in love with something new in the space of an hour, and then that becomes my main thing for months. Like a few years ago, um, I, I always thought that I can't draw. Uh, I, I can't draw a stick figure to save my life, this was my, my saying. These days, I make illustrations, and what do I draw? Stick figures. <laughs> it just happened, right? It showed up. I figured, I need to illustrate this presentation. I don't want to go and look on on, on uh, stock websites. I'll just, just draw a couple of things myself. How difficult can it be? And then people started helping me and giving me advice and it became a thing and it became fascinating. Then my coach said, hey, listen, you should draw portraits. You, sh you should copy uh, an artist every day for three weeks straight hmm. because he saw something in me that needed to come out and develop. And so for three weeks, I spent the entire day working with charcoal, copying portraits made by other artists just as an experience, uh, an experiment to see what would happen. And what happened is that I made some portraits, some drawings that really shocked me. Like they looked alive mm. and, and I had never thought that I was able to draw anything beyond a stick figure. I didn't even think that that is something I could draw. And this just to illustrate that you know, I, I have a business to run. I don't have time to spend three weeks just from one day to the next to go. But that's what I did because I fell in love with it. And that's what always keeps happening. I find an idea. It becomes interesting. I convince myself it's the right idea. And then I go into it full on. Like with the tailoring business, everybody was telling me, be careful because you don't have the experience. And I thought, well, I make really, really good suits. So I should be able to do this and make it a success. And I just jumped into it. Yeah, well, if you then three years later are completely bankrupt, you need to do something. And I had always done translations in the monastery, so I had a linguistic ability. Uh, I, I used to write, so I thought I'll just go and write some articles and you know cash flow so that I can figure out what to do next. Mm. Then I was asked, can you do a, a sales copy? Well, now we're talking three, four years as an entrepreneur. Um, I'd learned a lot about marketing and sales, so I took that job and they were very happy. And then sales copy became a thing. 
Then I realized I'm selling people a tool and most people who buy it don't know how to use that tool because they drive the wrong traffic at it or it's on a page that uh, is never going to convert. So I should start teaching people how to actually do their marketing better. So I transitioned from copywriting into education, hmm. did that for a while. And then I thought, artists, artists need help. Oh boy, is that a niche that really needs to learn how to market and sell? So I worked with artists for a while. Well, I actually spent the last few years trying to figure out who I'm for, like who is actually the sort of person that I want to work with. So it, it's just this natural progression from one event and one experience to the next. And I try to listen to life and just go along with what seems to make most sense and try to not be blinded too much by my falling in love with things, hmm. which is difficult. I mean, every single item on your resume is fascinating to me for very sincere and personal reasons. I'd like to go through some of them, if you don't mind. Uh, first, the monastery. I haven't really spoken or written about this too much so far, but I have been maintaining a meditation and yoga practice for the last 10 years. I started when I was a grad student. I would take breaks from the research and sit uh, in the garden outside of our lab, and I would read uh, these books by uh, Shunryu Suzuki, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and uh, Ajahn Brahm, who wrote a handbook for meditators. I have even trained as a yoga teacher, but I have never taken the step to immerse myself in an experience uh, that that has a long duration, like even for a week. For example, I've never been on a retreat. What drove you to becoming a monk? Did you experience something that led you to that path? No, not, not so much. When I was in my teens, I had no real spiritual orientation, uh, certainly had no belief or faith. I always considered myself an agnostic. Uh, but then I met people who meditated and started to join, and I found it very beneficial. It started to do a lot of good things for me. And I, I just went on, on, on blind faith, like, hey, meditation is good for you. You can sit with us if you like. Okay, I'll give it a try. And so over time, I became more involved. I, I would go more often, and then I would go and stay the night and help out with the kitchen and the painting and the translations. And then in the end, I would be there almost all week until it made sense to just you know move to a different city and live closer. Then around that time, the idea of an actual monastic community started to form. And so I started to live as if I had taken the vows, just, you know, to experiment. And that, again, gave another deepening of my experience. So it was a very natural next step to end up taking the vows and become an actual monk at some point. But again, it's just listening, seeing where I can grow and benefit most, going along with that. Can we learn more about the particular order or monastery or the teacher that you uh, that you studied with and that who's sort of uh, the group that you've joined? Do they have a particular name? Have they published books? Yes, there there are many books. Um, I don't typically go into into details uh, publicly. Uh, I don't know if that is something I should change. It's not uncommon. I mean, when I studied yoga teaching, my teacher himself almost never spoke about his, uh, I guess you could call it lineage. Uh, I mean, in his, he had his reasons, uh, but it's, it's common. I've seen many people. I've, I very recently, the last time I uh, studied with a new teacher, I took breathwork classes 
and uh, she actually didn't go into very much detail. So I I think it's because you know you when you become interested in these things you assimilate you synthesize so many different sources. Like it's very rare that even people who become part of a particular order or study with a teacher, you you continue to learn from other teachers, other resources, other uh, schools of thought. And I like to say when it comes to yoga, for example, uh, people ask me, what kind of yoga do you do? And I say, you know, there are as many kinds of yoga in the world as there are teachers. So every class I go to or every uh, time, I mean, I have my own sort of even brand when I practice by by myself. So it's hard to give names and to uh, delineate schools of thought when it comes to these things. And that's actually not the way that... I guess you could call it Eastern schools of thought or these philosophical schools. That's not the way they work. It's not like Western science where your citation graph is very clear and it's uh, you know very clear where every idea is coming from and whose lab and which experiment and which study and so on. Uh, do you still maintain any regular practices that you began as a monk? I meditate in the morning. I spend half an hour uh silence and it's about it my, my life changed mm-hmm. very dramatically when i left yeah so on the outside you know i i, I live a normal life i i go out so i i do i do i do all the wrong things <laughs> <laughs> on yeah. the inside <clears throat> nothing has changed right? because you can take yeah. a monk out of a monastery but you cannot take the monastery out of the monk so yeah. for me in my experience everything is just the same I don't meditate seven times a day anymore, but I'm still the same kind of person with the same values and mission and and desire to serve. All right. So let's get to some of those changes. Like I think tailoring was the next step that I saw on your resume. And tailoring I find really amazing because there are so many techniques in tailoring that are not possible to replicate with a machine. You know, most clothes are produced in factories with machines. And I know this because uh, my father was in the clothing industry. He uh, I mean, he's retired now mostly, uh, but he used to design and build and manage clothing factories for making suits and shirts and uh, jackets and so on. And handmade jackets and suits are a different story. There are so many techniques which are applied in these garments where, uh, you know, certain shapes and styles of, of these garments are not possible to manufacture with machines. They have to be done by hand. Um, how did you become involved in this line of work? Did you actually, were you the craftsperson or were you just managing the store? And how did you end up in that line of work? We were starting a monastery and we needed a uniform dress. And so we designed a shirt and uh, trousers to a jacket, you know, to, to, to be our brand. Oh, and somebody needs to make this because if, you know, monastery isn't a, a very wealthy uh, organization typically. Mm-hmm. So we can't go to shops and have this made. We, oh, Martin, you know how to use a sewing machine. Why don't you go and search for a tailor and learn how to make this? A study just making clothing. And I dutifully went and learned from a old um, uh, guy in The Hague in Holland. And he taught me how to make his clothes. And then I thought, actually, my teacher says that I'm you know, talented or that I'm good. So why don't I also learn how to make, you know, like suits, like proper business, because then you can sell these. Then I can do work that supports the community. 
So I started learning that. To, to, and, and, and again, this is then one of those examples where I fell, fell in love with an idea, even though people were saying, we need your help with the translations. This is a waste of time. We don't want to sell suits. No. Believe me, I can do this. This is worth a lot of money. We can, you know, fund our, our development. So I learned, in addition to our own clothing, how to make, you know, high street uh, handmade wear. Hmm. And when I left the monastery, the most logical thing to do was to just set up shop and, and, and try to make a living. It went really badly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was such a disaster. But, you know, I, I learned from that. It, it was, uh, uh, it was a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollar MBA is what I, what I call it. Hmm. Because that's, you know, my, my dad died in the year after I left. Mm. So I had 150,000 K, 150 K. And I thought now I can invest, you know, with money, you can make money. Mm. But because I didn't know anything about business and I didn't want to do any marketing and selling, mm. I blew through that money because I also had no idea about how to, how to deal with money. Mm. I just was not a, 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 a qualified business owner. So mm. it was an abysmal failure and, um, it was the best school. I mean, you, you can't, you cannot purchase uh, experience like that. Mm. It was really tough and it was a disaster. But yeah. what I came away with was uh, a schooling that has served me to this day. I don't regret it. I mean, I'd rather have my dad than, than a bankrupt company behind me. Mm. But this is how life went. And it's, it's been a real growth process throughout. Uh, you mentioned marketing and sales and that, that sort of as the reason why your business didn't go well in my and this is my own private experience so i'm not sure if it generalizes but my experience with uh designers and craftspeople is that uh it's very easy to be like not be able to deliver the client's expectations because the, what you're what you're buying this the sort of the product that you're obviously custom making to the person doesn't exist at the start so it's hard to uh materialize what the client has in their head that's the main challenge that i'm having when i work with designers uh, so i spend a lot of time uh, trying to come up with ways for how i can communicate my intentions to designers and when i teach uh, to upcoming designers i try to teach them ways of communicating with clients and how to um, capture and uh, in stages in increasing fidelity or increasing resolution to materialize actually uh, the intentions that are that are incoming as inputs was that part of your experience or is, is that another dimension that uh, is, is not uh, to, to what degree sort of, will a client know what design is the right design what can we define now as an outcome that once it's ready you'll sign off on mm. that is a very difficult thing to do Mm. Um, I'm thinking now of the, the clients from hell website, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen it <laughs> where feedback comes back and it says, mm. can you make it pop more? What even are you asking for? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I have, uh, I've seen it firsthand and I've also given some of that first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, what kind of things, what do you say when somebody comes mm. back with, why do they come back and say something like that? Mm. Well, first of all, Possibly because you shouldn't have taken on that client to begin with. 
Yeah, that's uh, somebody who ends up asking something like that can be identified at the start. And somebody who asks, can you make it pop? Doesn't sound to me like a client that you can ever satisfy. So that's somebody that you want to be able to identify and filter out right at the start. And there's ways to do that. Right? You, you can ask specific questions that help you understand if this is quality client material or not. Mm. And if it's not, you shouldn't want to work with that person. Mm. Now, then you end up with quality clients. Okay, now you need to figure out what exactly it is that they want. So when a client comes to you and they tell you that, you know, whether it's a website or a logo, I don't, I don't know how mm. you work and what you do, but what is that person actually buying? I'm hiring a designer. Can I talk to Mehmet? Okay. What is Mehmet's client buying? That's a, that's a good question. That's the question that, uh, you know, when, when the topic of sales and marketing and business comes up in uh, design uh, circles, so in the business of design, uh, which is mostly uh, service kind of business as opposed to product business, and it's like a, uh, mostly a landscape of smaller companies, agencies, and such. Th this is usually the crux of the conversation. Like, what actually are you selling to these people and how do you communicate it? Uh, there's a really great um, kind of master of this topic. His name is Chris Do, and he has this uh, organization called The Future, which uh, provides... Uh, Education. They do business education for designers and uh, on various other topics, which really was a big inspiration behind uh, this this project that I'm doing behind design discipline. And he talks about the same things. So how do you uh, figure out what is this person actually want? Because if you don't figure that out, then you, you can never satisfy this this person. You can only satisfy the client if both you and the client are clear on what it is that you're trying to satisfy you know something looking good or you know popping or something these are not actionable these are not uh, detectable criteria you should ideally boil down to uh, certain criteria certain goals that you know you can look at the product or you can look at the result that the product leads to in a few weeks or in a few months and you can see in the numbers in the in the shapes in the whatever you're looking at that yes it is satisfied or no it's not satisfied so it should be easily it should be visible in the data somehow but before you get to see the data the client needs to say yeah. good we're done here i'm signing off on it yeah right so what is the because it is so non-measurable mm. And because very often a client will want something that is against their best interest, you know, that's, that's the same thing with, with copywriting. Very often uh, a client will say, yeah, I don't really like it. Mm. That doesn't really matter. Does the ideal reader, the person that you want to connect with, do they like it? Will it click with them? Because what you like might be completely different from what your idea. So if we're, I'm going to turn the copy around and turn it into something that you like, I might have just killed the entire pro project. Hmm. No sales, no signups. You, you know, so subjective being pleased of the client, the, the, the satisfaction is not necessarily a good criterion for hmm. saying it's re it's ready and it's right. 
I see a real challenge there for designers in how you have this, this conversation. And so the, you go back to the question, what is somebody really buying, right? Mm. Now you said the crux is always, what are we selling people? But that is not the question. What you're selling is different from what people are buying. Mm-hmm. Now, what does somebody ultimately achieve when they buy something? Steve Jobs said people don't buy a product, they buy a different version of themselves. And mm-hmm. that's where you find the solution. Right? So everything that we do is a way of signaling to other people who we are, what we care about, what we stand for, what we would stand against. And that stems from how we see ourselves. I am the ethical selling coach and I stand for that and I will help people who deserve to do well so that they get to serve better. That's Martin's identity. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Any time that you do something, including everything that you purchase, says something about how you see yourself in the world and how you see yourself relating to the world. Mm. And when somebody makes a significant decision, you know, buying a phone case is a trivial decision and a trivial identity consequence. But if you buy a new website design, for example, yeah, that that is a much more weighty choice to make. And so when somebody spends 5,000, 15,000 on a big design package, what does that say about them? What kind of different self-view do they purchase when they give you that money? And that's where you have to start. And when you have your sales conversations with people, you want to figure out not just what it is, what is the concrete visual effect generating deliverable that they're purchasing, but also what change in self-view that signifies for them. Because once you have that, then figuring out what is required to fulfill that change in self-view that they're looking for, that becomes a much easier job to do. So now we're really looking at the the, uh, deeper working of psychology and how somebody sees themselves relating to the outside world and how they see themselves, what story they tell themselves about themselves and their role in the world and their relationships. So if you, if we try to put that in a framework, it seems to me like you, let's take the side of the client or the side of a business owner who might be buying a service, a design, whatever, one of the considerations is that what result is this going to generate for the business? Another consideration is what result is going to generate, uh, is this is this project going to generate in terms of your self-view as the person who's responsible for executing this or for, for running this business? And if you can align those things, you win. And as the other side as the supplier of services or designs or coaching or whatever if you can align those same things on your side with uh, the considerations on your client's side then everyone wins it's an interesting framework and it doesn't have to be that difficult you know people get themselves all worked up and and bent into a bent out of shape trying to figure out how to converse with a client in such a way that it uh, ask questions be interested do you have any 
experiences in terms of identifying in a client or in a prospective customer, uh, a customer whose self goals and business goals are aligned versus not aligned? Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is my business partner. I'm, I'm starting an agency with a friend. And um, yeah, I had to... So he's never been an entrepreneur. He's a lifelong employee. And mm. uh, because of last year's situation, uh, his office was was uh, closed. He, he runs a co-working space. Mm. And suddenly <clears throat> he was at home and bored. And I said, Antonio, this is the time. We've been talking about this for years. Let's do this. Let's start something together. For him, that's a big choice, a big step, because it requires all kinds of decisions and habits and actions that he's not used to, right? To, 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 to be a self-sustaining production machine. Hey, uh, if you've always been an employee, then where are you going to find that if you don't have the entrepreneurial spark? So I had to find a way to have him want to step in to the role, the identity, the partnership, the collaboration. And in his case, it was very simply that, well, he used to be a finance man. He used to be a stock uh, trader. He left that behind years ago. These days, he just really would like to spend time with nice people and help them hmm. and share from his knowledge. Hmm. So for Antonio, it was a matter of developing activities and attitudes that enable him to just be more generous and helpful with people. That's a, that's a very good example. Our time seems to be coming up. And before we hit the end of our uh, scheduled time, there are some quick fire questions that I'd like to uh, ask you because I like to ask them to all of my guests. What are some books that you recommend the most to people that you work with? Uh, for negotiation, uh, try Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Oh, I love um, him. That's a really good he book. He is so good, yeah. For uh, pitching, uh, Oren Clef, Pitch Anything. Yeah. Totally uh, different attitude, though, like from yours, I would say, because I've read that book. Yeah, very different. Yeah. But his way of looking at the process and composing messaging that works for people is very useful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not endorsing anybody's views or, or politics or anything. I'm just saying that he says things that you can learn from. For psychology, especially for the psychology of dealing with um, uh, costly sales, like high-ticket mm -hmm. sales, um, Jeffrey Miller, mm -hmm. and the book is called Spent, Sex, uh, Consumerism, and <laughs> Evolutionary Biology, or something like that. Jeffrey Miller spent, and then the subtitle, I'm not quite sure. Interesting. And he really dives deep into, into why, on a very fundamentally psychological level, mm. uh, we, we, we are motivated to, to do things. So these are three that I think, Jay Abraham, uh, getting everything mm. you can out of all that you've got. Mm. That's a really good book. What places and tools do you spend most of your time with these days? And tools, or perhaps also places? includes software well places um I, I like to be at the beach uh with my laptop and mm -hmm. just do my my work um where it comes to tools 
I use all kinds of things from, from Slack to Telegram to Opera browser, which people laugh at me because I should use a modern, <laughs> modern browser. They say, I like it. Get yeah. off my back. Um, um, I use Thunderbird, which again, apparently is not something you should say. Um, but I like it. <laughs> so it's, there's nothing really specific. I, I find whatever tool is easiest to implement for the job to be done at the moment. Do you know what is next for you? Anything that is exciting for you that uh, you're intending to go into in the near future? Well, I'd like to start a podcast. It's a bit of an opportunity cost there, so I don't know if that is something mm. I'll be doing soon. Yeah. Uh, next is trying to get my agency, our agency, to, to success. We started with a completely new focus a month ago. Uh, we're doing customer interviews right now. Uh, we're getting some good feedback and some really valuable insights. Mm. So we hope to take that to to revenue. I mean, we're, we're just starting out. We've been trying for a year to launch this thing, mm. but we kept trying new things and new <laughs> a lot of experiments. <laughs> so now it's like, okay, no, we're going to be working with bootstrappers and that is the kind of person that we want to talk to. Mm. So to get that uh, up and running, that's that's next. That's what we're working on. Where can we find you and your work on the internet? I'm at martinsteller.com. Uh, that's also my handle on Twitter, which is basically the only social media that I use. Mm. Um, you can send me an email at hello at martinsteller.com. Um, always happy to, to meet new people. Those are all of the intelligent things that I believe I have to say. <laughs> uh, is there anything that uh, you would like to add, uh, ask, demand, anything I'm missing? Whatever it is that you're trying to achieve and figure out, whether it's in business or in sales, marketing, don't take yourself so seriously, <laughs> right? We, we get all stuck in our heads thinking about how important this is only your ideas. Mm. This is the way you configure your view on the world. And then you make that a big thing that needs to, then you're taking yourself much more seriously than you need to chill mm. out. Just have a conversation with people. A buyer is often just as uh, anxious as you are. Because, oh, they're going to put pressure on me and it's going to be so expensive and then all the decisions that I have to make and, 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 and mm. they need help. When you're selling to somebody, you're there to help them. So just have a conversation with people about what is the best decision for you to make at this moment. Yes or no? Excellent. Thank you so much, Martin. This has been an absolute pleasure. I am Likewise. looking forward to having many more conversations with you. Anytime you want. I, you, as you can tell, I, I love talking. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you.